Good evening, and thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd. I have a few things to share with you. In the introduction to this spooktacular episode, things that go bump in the brain. Next week, Tuesday, October 26th, at 7 p.m. Central Time, at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Lyle, Illinois, we'll have our monthly Kind Mind Gathering. We've been up and running in person for the last few months, and thankfully it's going well. The cost is $25 to attend, but if you're a third-tier Patreon member, which is only a $20 a month pledge, attendance is free along with all the bonus content that you get with being a member of Patreon. So if you know you want to be attending these meetings, you can save some money. You also have the exclusive option in that tier to join the meeting remotely through a private Zoom link. It will also allow you to participate, ask questions, and interact with me and the audience. And the topic this month is ghosts and graveyards. I want to make it an annual event at the October Kind Mind Gathering where people in the community can come and share their meaningful ghost stories or stories of the paranormal. And that will build off what we're going to talk about here in this episode. And then I can share my experiences and also shed some light on alternative explanations and what science has to say about some of the phenomena. So I look forward to all that Halloween fun next week. Speaking of Patreon, thank you very much to those who are supporting this work on patreon.com forward slash kindmind. I've added an additional option, a fourth tier which gives all the benefits of the first three, including access to the Kind Mind Studio with the meditations and the poetry and the expanded reading list. I just added five more books to the recommended reading, books that have changed my mind. But in this fourth tier, you'll also have the opportunity to do a monthly phone call or video chat with me to discuss anything you'd like related to your personal growth, your psychological well-being, and your mindfulness practice, and we can help tailor it to your personal circumstances and the unique challenges that you may face. And of course, it's private and confidential. You may also gift that benefit to a friend or loved one. Also, my book is coming close to being finished. I'm interested in exploring different ways to release it, but however it comes out, I would like to create a small team around this book. So if you have any interest in being on a small committee with me to help guide, um, please get in touch because I think this book of reflections has the potential to make a really positive impact on the wider community in our society. But if you feel that also, I'd like to include you, and we can find a special way to do that together. And this episode, Things That Go Bump in the Brain. The reason why I wanted to spend some time talking about scientific explanations for some common paranormal phenomena is not to debunk people's experiences with deceased loved ones or signs from the beyond that are comforting. This is more so related to the painful experiences that so many friends that I've talked to privately and especially patients that I've worked with in the hospital 
people have really suffered feeling as though something demonic or evil has haunted their mind, invaded their space, crossed their boundaries. And listening to these stories over the years and knowing what I know about the brain and psychology, I found that many of these experiences do create unnecessary suffering. And if people just had some of these insights, it might be the difference between them being able to get a good night's sleep, to be able to feel safe in their own bed, and to be able to turn a corner in their spiritual wellness. So we talk about seeing shadowy figures and how that relates to the way our vision works with the periphery. We talk about sounds like electronic voice phenomena, EVP, and other explanations for seeing things. There have been documented accounts of houses having carbon monoxide leaks, and therefore everyone in the family has hallucinations because of the the effect on the brain from the toxin. Talk about how we are wired to sense the presence of other minds, not the presence of other living things. Because most of us would agree that a tree is alive, that a plant is alive, bacteria is alive. But when you walk through a garden, most people don't get the felt sense that that many others are watching them or with them. I do think spiritual people and open-hearted people cultivate an appreciation for all living things. But that's not quite the same thing as I'm talking about with the felt sense in the body and how it changes your experience and your behavior. To Just think you're in your room going about your business or you're in the bathroom and suddenly you know somebody is watching you it would immediately feel different and it would alter the way that you continue whatever you're doing. So that's actually wired into us. And it makes sense that it would be because there are activities we have to do, like going to the bathroom, that for our ancestors or going to sleep would put us in a very vulnerable condition to enemies or predators. So it makes sense that we would want to know one another mind, not just one another living thing, right? Because a plant isn't necessarily going to be higher up than us on the food chain. But what does this mean? Anytime the brain senses that there could be another mind, we will get the felt sense of a presence. And this is what people talk about with ghost stories, that I felt a presence. And so I share some other studies that involve pushing a button and having a robotic finger poke you in the back. When it's synced up with your movements, people don't sense a presence. But when it's delayed, even though the person's controlling the poke, they immediately report feeling a presence behind them. So anytime we sense or see things or out of the corner of our eye or in a dimly lit room, you think the coat rack is a dark, shadowy figure, you may in fact get a presence, but it is the sense that there is another mind. And I say mind because we don't know if a ghost would have a brain. I talk about mental illness, conditions like paranoid schizophrenia, and also how the condition of prosopagnosia, where people can't recognize the faces 
of people they know, like even their loved ones. It's a really scary condition. It's not that they don't see faces at all. At all. It's just that we have a particular region of the brain called the fusiform gyrus, which helps us discriminate faces. Otherwise, it would just be an object. If you pull an apple out of a bushel of apples, look at it carefully, put it back in the bushel, come back a month later, you will most likely not be able to find that apple or be able to distinguish that apple from the others. They just look like apples. And that's what it's like when this part of the brain is damaged. However, if that's a reality, that people might not be able to recognize faces that they ought to be able to, because that's a special function of the brain, treating faces differently than other objects, then it also stands to reason that the opposite could be true, and we explore that, which is called pareidolia, where you see faces where they don't exist. I'm sharing what I'm sharing about science and the, and the brain and psychology when it comes to the paranormal, but I'm completely open to the mystery and the possibility of life after death, the the possibility that consciousness continues, the possibility that there are true encounters with other types of beings. And the last thing I want to say is that the next episode I'm probably going to work on is going to be a new segment called Question and Reflection. A little different than question and answer because I don't want to purport to know the answers to any question, the final answers. But question and reflection, I think, encourages further dialogue. And I'm inviting members of the Patreon community to submit questions, which many have. And as I collect questions there, I will turn them into an episode where I can recite the question to the audience on the podcast anonymously and confidentially protecting the identity of the one who submitted the question. And in that way, you can ask anything you like. It can be as personal as you want it to be about you or about me or about the world. And then I'll have time to reflect and offer my perspective and hopefully give you useful insights and more meaning to continue your own investigation of that topic. So you can be looking for that soon. I thank you very much for all your support. I hope to see you next week at the Kind Mind Gathering in person or perhaps online. I hope you'll check out patreon.com forward slash kindmind if you haven't had a chance to yet. And if you have any questions about how it works, feel free to reach out. You can find me on social media on Facebook or Instagram at Michael Todd Fink. And now you may sit back with your hot chocolate or apple cider and enjoy things that go bump in the brain. I'd like to begin with a little scary story. Comes from Ireland when I was studying abroad at the University College of Dublin. And this story takes place on a night just like tonight. Except it was storming really, really hard that night. And lots of thunder. And a young college student named John was hitchhiking down a dark and lonesome road. But no cars were coming, and he was getting totally soaked and totally cold, waiting and waiting. Finally, 
He saw in the distance a car approaching slowly, slowly, slowly. And then it stopped. And without thinking, John just rushed over to the car and hopped into the back seat, so desperate to get out of the rain. But then he looks to the front and finds there's no one driving this car. And it starts to drive forward again. And then he also realizes the engine isn't even on. And as he looks ahead, he can see that the car is coming to a curve in the road, and he's terrified. Just when it seems like the car is going to veer off, off the highway, a hand appeared through the window and grabbed the wheel and started to turn it. And then, up ahead, he could see a pub. Fearing for his life, he decided he would jump out of the car while it was moving. So he did, and he rolls to safety, and then runs into the pub. And all disheveled and soaked from the rain, he starts crying out to everybody, Help, 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 you won't believe what just happened to me. And tears are starting to come down his face because of all the fear. And the other people at the bar became surprised when they realized this man's crying, but he's not drinking. So they come over to him. (laughs) And then, as he's telling the story, two more gentlemen bust in, all disheveled and soaked from the rain. And one of them says, There's the guy. (laughs) There's the guy who jumped into our car while we were pushing it. Not too scary. Tonight I thought we would uh, explore the paranormal, specifically theories of ghosts. I've always been fascinated with the paranormal my whole life. I've enjoyed Halloween. It's probably one of my favorite holidays. I think being born in October has something to do with it. It's just been like the celebration month as as a little kid. And I have a photo of my first Halloween. I was a pirate. It was only days old, but I got dressed up. I've never really been into, like, horror movies. But I have been interested in spooky stuff or eerie stuff. I've enjoyed that dimension of life in the same way that people might like sad songs or other types of suspense or drama film. I uh, really loved The X-Files. I don't know if you've ever seen that series when I was a kid in the 90s. It was like a nice blend of the occult and science. So that, that appealed to me as well. Every culture, though, seems to have beliefs about ghosts. And... I think that, to some extent, informs what we're looking for and what we're interpreting. And I think religion has a hand in this. So, for instance, at least in Catholic Christianity, ghosts would maybe be interpreted as the souls of the deceased. And since you have heaven and hell, if in the beliefs about the afterlife, If you're encountering a spirit, well, that's probably not too good of a thing, right? Because it's either waiting to get into one of these places or it's 
maybe somehow in purgatory. So basically, growing up as a Catholic boy, encountering a ghost or being in areas of old cathedrals that were haunted, uh, you didn't really want to encounter those spirits because they're probably up to no good. In Buddhism, there's a concept of that's translated as hungry ghosts, and they're also between worlds. Or in Hinduism, these worlds are called lokas, different planes of existence. But I think even prior to these major faiths, humans probably understood that people come and people go. And where do these people go? Or what would go on if something did go on? And and that probably became the beginning of the supernatural, the concept of the supernatural or people making contact from, from beyond the grave. Of course, we have Halloween. Other parts of the world celebrate around this time, like uh, in Mexico. My mom's side of the family is Mexican, so I grew up appreciating Dia de los Muertos. It's not very scary at all, that holiday, and we've, we've talked about that in the past. If you're interested in learning about how the positive side of being able to talk about death and dying, there's a ep- podcast episode called the, the Last Taboo. But growing up with some connection to Mexican culture, there is a lot of ghost stories. It seems to be part of the culture to scare your children to some extent with stories of spirits. There is um, a very popular story of a crying woman that can come get you, La Llorona, which means the crying lady. And so people tend to see her even here in the United States. I would hear stories about um, El Diablo, either Satan or some type of devil hiding, uh, ready to get you if you if you're behaving badly. Oftentimes, there'd be stories of something like that hiding under the bed, which would lead me to have to jump into my bed from about six feet out to avoid getting pulled underneath. <laughs> Closets are always good hiding places for some of these ghosts and spirits. Some cultures believe in demons. In the mid, uh, Middle Ages, many illnesses attributed to was to demonic possession. Illnesses that we treat today with medications and help people recover from were once thought to be requiring an, an exorcism. Conditions like dissociative identity disorder or schizophrenia. In my work with patients over the years in the hospital, I have noticed that probably a larger number of those with DID, dissociative identity disorder, some of the symptoms included uh, hallucinations, also with schizophrenia, and sometimes those hallucinations were of ghosts or spirits. Uh, Sadly, it, it was often a voice of something dark and disturbing. And it's an extremely painful experience emotionally for those patients going through some of those symptoms. Sometimes they're helped with medication and sometimes some cognitive therapy and meditation and grounding techniques can be helpful as well. But it's a feature within the human psyche. If you understand that as many as 1% of the human population 
is estimated to to uh, meet criteria for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, that's over 50 million people currently today. And that's certainly enough to account for, not account, I would say, but to give us an entire body of ghost stories. I'm not saying that, that that's the explanation for it. I'm just saying that that alone would produce so many uh, scary tales based on the hallucinations associated with those conditions. One thing's for sure, there, there's mystery in life. We, we'll explore what evidence there may be for alternative explanations for some of the more common types of paranormal encounters. First, let me say, you may have heard that in the past, people wondered what the soul was that was that could haunt people. Is it material? Is it immaterial? And in 1907, a doctor published a paper. His name was Duncan McDougall. And he had used some, some kind of scale to measure the weight of a patient at the time precisely before and after death. He did this with six patients. And he concluded that the soul weighed 21 grams. So you may have heard that that theory before. I think even shows or movies been made out of that. But the truth of that paper was that he had done that with six patients and only one of them had a weight change. And it was most likely explained by a buildup of thermal energy that released at the time of death. Anyways, my point is that scientists have been trying to investigate different phenomena and uh, I was always kind of inspired or curious about that kind of work investigating paranormal activity I mean what kind of how awesome would that job be so I, I once thought after my psychology degree I would get some kind of advanced study or certificate or graduate or PhD in parapsychology like Dr. Venkman he was uh, one of the Ghostbusters. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was the first time I had ever heard someone say that he had a PhD in psychology and parapsychology. Anyways, what's common in a lot of the reports is that people are experiencing things around the time of sleep. So that tells us something. One of the very few experiences I had was in a, a hotel. I thought I heard a gunshot in my room and felt the presence of something. I did ask around and later found out that many people experienced something similar and that that old hotel was thought to be haunted. But of course, that happened in the middle of the night and in between sort of dream and, and waking. And a common report from people is that they feel as though they're paralyzed when they wake up or they've sensed a, a presence, a ghostly or demonic presence holding their body down in a bed. I have talked with lots of people that have experienced this, not just in the hospital, but also among friends. So one possible explanation or one logical explanation is that when we are in deep sleep, in rapid eye movement, only the eyes can move, really. The rest of our mobility is impaired. And the thinking here is that our brain has developed this system of being able to turn our movement on and off to keep us safe. If every time we're running or jumping or falling, if we moved in that manner with our bodies in our sleep, we could probably 
get seriously injured. So in deep sleep or delta sleep, the body is actually paralyzed and there can be experiences or occasions when a person is disrupted from delta sleep into waking and these wires get crossed, so to speak, and the brain misfires. And so then the person is awake, but still dreaming. And this is just a, a very simple way of thinking of, of many of these experiences that people often neglect to look at. When we're asleep, we can produce an entire world with any kind of phenomena. Lately, most of my dreams are with other people who I have never met. I would say over the last several months, it's much less likely that I will see somebody in my dream that I know in real life. And it's kind of fascinating because I'll encounter somebody in my dream and recognize the dream friend. Of course, they're not a real friend in real life. And that will trigger a flood of memories of all of our experiences together, me and the dream friend, growing up with that person. So if we just pause here for a moment, I mean, just think of how complex that is. In my dream, I can have dream memories of dream friends. It just shows how deep the phenomena can go with producing a world. Now, it's not that that can only happen when one is asleep. When it happens when awake, we would call that a hallucination. But hallucinations don't only occur to those with mental illness. Most people will have some experience of having heard something or having saw something unusual. As far as the shadowy experiences, which many people report, the likelihood here is that our range of vision isn't, isn't so wide. We had talked a couple meetings ago that pigeons have nearly 360 degrees of vision, where we have less than 180. And so at the ends of our vision, it's darkness there. So you, you'll notice that most times the reports uh, or the descriptions of shadowy people are always at the very far periphery, where it's already dark to begin with. It's less likely that that happens right, right in front of you. However, shadows do move, and I definitely saw a shadow that appeared to be a person move across the whole wall at our house. And as soon as I saw that, and it was in the shape of a person, I immediately felt a presence. Now, part of the, the neurological response to this is when you, when you see something that you make out to be another organism, your brain actually then gives you the sensation of the presence of, of another. So for the most part, human beings are not solipsistic, meaning we don't feel as though we have the only mind in the universe. We have the sense that everything else that is alive has its own mind. So naturally, when you encounter something that seems to be alive, like not inanimate, the brain then gives you the felt sense of the presence of another being. And this is a type of top-down processing in the brain. This, this can also speak to, to how we sometimes see things or see faces in things. Uh, devout people will sometimes report, you know, seeing Mother Mary in a piece of toast. Uh, there was a, a very 
popular site in Chicago not too long back, I mean, maybe a decade or two ago, where some leaking water under a bridge had kind of formed into the shape of Mother Mary, and there was lots of uh, offerings made there, and people were coming to pray there. And, and it really did look like, you know, the outline of Mother Mary. I saw this once in Florida after some people uh, did window washing of an office space that was entirely glass. And then after they finished the sort of outline of the of the soap or whatever it was in the shape of Mother Mary, and people were coming from, from all over the country to worship. But there is actually a condition called pareidolia. Pareidolia is when a person sees too many faces where there's not one. Okay? So this could be like in clouds, uh, the face we see uh, from a photo on, on Mars, faces in images of the moon. Now why does this happen, or why could this happen? It's because the brain actually has a region dedicated to seeing faces. The reason why I think this makes sense, at least for some of the experiences of the shadowy figures or or seeing a presence or maybe seeing the face of somebody we know is because we already know the opposite is true with the brain. What would the opposite of pareidolia be? The inability to see faces. Okay, this is called prosopagnosia. And from certain brain traumatic brain injuries, people cannot recognize their loved ones. Everything else they can see. But looking at somebody I know, I can't, I can't recognize that person as my friend or family member. Can you imagine how difficult life would be? It's, these people really struggle uh, socially, those with this condition. And it affects a significant part of the population. You know, the more I learn about the different types of conditions, medical conditions or neurological conditions, the more you realize how much suffering there is in the world and, and why compassion is so important. But anyways, if we know that there is a condition where people actually can't make out a face, a recognizable face, so they would just look at things and just see, for the most part, the parts. There are eyes there, there's a nose there, but they don't see it as a familiar face. Then isn't it possible that the opposite is true? And in studies of people with both uh, pareidolia and prosopagnosia, you can see a certain kind of change in activity in a region called the fusiform gyrus. It's part of the vision center in the brain. And so when there's impairment in this region, you can get this dial way off. And so when people are seeing, uh, seeing faces, in the clouds or in your pancake or whatever. It's uh, possible that it's part of a larger condition called apophenia. And apophenia is a mild characteristic of schizophrenia where when it becomes more advanced, it could be leading to a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. That's when a person perceives meaning and connection where there's none. So in extreme forms of this, I think the people on the news tonight were talking about me. They were looking right at me and they, you know, they mentioned something that uh, was referring to me. And they're not making that up. They're honestly perceiving it that way and feeling it that way. It's remarkable too how 
not widely prevalent, but how prevalent it actually is. I have obviously traveled a lot for, for music and for speaking, and I have encountered people with this condition or mild paranoid schizophrenia in all kinds of walks of life. I've given uh, talks at universities and have worked closely with a, a professor who had paranoid schizophrenia. And it was strange because up until the point where that became relevant that, by the way, keep an eye out on your way out to the parking lot because I know there's like three cars uh, ready to follow me out there. It's like as long as that didn't come up, everything else was okay. We could, we could work, we could collaborate. And the person was highly intelligent, math professor. So the point here is our perception is so powerful. I had mentioned before that dreams are accepted as real despite how bizarre they may be. You could be flying, you could be in two places at the same time, nothing can make sense and yet a person in the dream will rarely go, well then maybe this is a dream. I mean how wild is that? No matter how bizarre or how many laws of physics get broken in the dream, the person goes on accepting it as real. And the cause of that is not imagination uh, and a lack of critical thought. The cause, because all the faculties of the brain are intact during dream, but the cause is that the simulation is so authentic. Our notion of reality doesn't break down just because things betray the laws of physics. As long as the simulation is tight enough, it's accepted as real. I mean, this also explains how we can be spooked from stories, from film, from, from so many types of media and art, even knowing that it's not real. Even when we're told something is fake, we still accept it as somewhat real. Like, we'll know a movie's not real and, and it'll still scare us. Almost everybody, not quite everybody, but almost everybody knows WWE is not real or is scripted. But still, there's an emotional investment. I mean, I, I watched WWE growing up and I can still appreciate the talent and athleticism in it. But it speaks to that feature of our, of our brain that we can take our perceptions to be real even if you know we have the intellectual understanding that that it's not so another one is sounds you know if you watch the, the ghost tv shows a lot of people go ghost hunting with recording devices to try to get what's called evp electronic voice phenomena some of the same principles like with uh, pareidolia can also operate with other senses. When you play one of these EVP recordings for people and they don't know that it's EVP, they'll often say that it's, you know, it's just some noise. But if you tell subjects in experiments that you think you hear a particular phrase, they're significantly more likely to hear it also. Again, because of top-down processing in the brain. The brain is always looking to make patterns, looking to find connection, 
because it's a shortcut. It's much harder to to have to put everything together every time. Imagine with like every time you see your spouse, you have to build the person back up in your mind. Okay, here's an eye, here's an eye, here's a nose, long mustache, long hair. Okay, that's Todd. That would take so much energy in the brain. And so through evolution, all these shortcuts have been wired in so that we can recognize things and not need to do all of that building work. Now, this also explains how we can just look at an emoji of, say, a semicolon and a parenthetical and see a face winking. You know, we would see a, a, a winking face probably before we would see a period above a comma and, and parenthesis sign. Also, it's important to keep in mind that sounds are frequencies. So it's a waveform that's actually traveling through the air, creating ripples in the air that then touch us. So there is a felt sense also to sound. Sound isn't just something that we perceive through our ears. Recently, I was playing a Tibetan singing bowl for a group of patients, and I asked them to listen um, with, with their bodies. And then afterwards, people would say, I could feel the sound in my head, or I feel it in my throat, or someone felt it in their stomach. Now imagine that's a frequency that you can't hear well. Okay, so above 16,000 hertz, 16 kilohertz, most adults my age or older can't hear that very well. It's too high in the range, but kids can. Children before the normal hearing loss can hear those higher frequencies. Of course, dogs can too. I had an experience not too long ago with my brother. It was just me and him alone at uh, at the house and suddenly our dog his dog really my nephew huckleberry fink wanders away goes upstairs and then i hear somebody talking to huck saying something like shh be quiet don't bark or that's what it sounded like to me and then i look over at my brother and he and i just glance at him and he goes i heard it too and he pops up and I pop up and we run up there and now our first instinct is that there is a person in the house right because that's that's where the brain would would first go you hear somebody talking and you get you get concerned or you get scared thinking like there's an intruder so he goes and grabs a bat and I grab something else and and we start and also Huck is barking then as soon as as I heard that someone talking to him, then Huck started barking frantically. And we go up there, and Huck's still barking at nothing. And and that spooked me, me and E out, and we're like, what is it? What, what is it, Huck? What do you see? And then we go through, like, literally every section of the house with the baseball bat. I mean, top to bottom in the house, trying to find out where somebody might be hiding. And then we, we know we found nothing. And... We were like, what the heck was it? I'm like, here's what I heard. And my brother's like, I heard the exact same thing. Somebody was talking to Huck, telling him to be quiet. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what that that was. It's just like so many of these stories, it's mysterious. But I do know that there have been cases where, because let me pause for a second there, because my my thinking was, you know, I I hear the 
different expl explanations for things. But what really moves me is when entire groups of people or multiple people experience the same thing, right? That seems to be more evidence for, for something supernatural, right? But there have been cases where entire workplaces have heard sounds or felt the presence of a ghost. This even happened at a laboratory where scientists were working and they were hearing sounds and feeling the presence of something eerie or ghostly to the point where people were calling in sick because they felt so uh, spooked by this environment. So some researchers came in and they found out that the fan was emitting a frequency that they couldn't quite hear well, but produced a wave frequency that, that you can feel in your body. And so naturally when those waves were touching the body, but they couldn't hear it, it felt like something, like a presence was touching them. Now, why does that translate to feeling like there's a presence? It's like, okay, like when there's a breeze blowing, it's not like I think there's a ghost, uh, you know, massaging my, my back. But actually, people do sometimes feel as though the wind is a presence. If preceding that, they're thinking about a loved one that has uh, gone on. This presence. There's also been an experiment with robotic prosthetics where the subjects can control how this robotic finger can poke you in the back. So you push a button and then prosthetic finger pokes you, right? So you feel it. But a person does not feel any presence because they know I'm pushing this button and the robot's doing it. But if the researchers recalibrate this instrument to make the poke come half a second after they push the button, immediately the subjects feel as though there's someone else in the room with them. Pretty powerful stuff, right? Because it's not syncing up with their motion. What this means is that so much of our experience is not our brain telling us what is in the environment. It's our brain creating the environment. And recently, I've thought in a spiritual way about all this. Somebody said to me, like, but when you have a dream and there's a, a spirit in your dream, that's real, right? It's like, even though you wake up and the dream's gone, you really had a dream, right? So you, you really did see something. And I've lacked the language to explain this, but the way I would do so is by taking the word real and true. I think that so much of what we experience both in waking reality and sleeping dream is real. Real in the sense that you really see it, you really experience it, and it really, it may really mean something, but it's not all true. True in the sense that it's existing. So like if you see a movie, you're, you're really seeing the movie. But the movie is not true. Now, of course, those aren't perfect words here. So what I did is I, I went back to some of my training in India and thought about states of consciousness. The philosophy of yoga, specifically in Vedanta and the Upanishads of the Vedas in ancient Hindu philosophy, there is the description of three states of consciousness. 
where all this phenomena arises, including what scares us, including what's paranormal, including perhaps real encounters with spirits from the beyond. But they happen in three states of consciousness, and those three states are called Sushupti, which means deep sleep, Swapna, which means dream, and Jagrat, which means the world or the waking reality. And then the spiritual aspirant is trying to reach a fourth state, which you never experience ordinarily, called Turiya. Turiya means the state beyond those three, the truth of the self. And what supposedly happens when you enter into Turiya state of consciousness, you have an unbroken awareness through the other three. You're aware of the truth whether you're in deep sleep, whether you're in dream, or whether you're awake. Now, I came away from that, and with my scientific propensity, I thought, why a need for a fourth state? That sounds superstitious. But only recently I went back, I've thought about those Sanskrit words, and I realized there is a logical reason for a fourth state if you translate the words better. So here's my translation. Sushupti, dreamless asleep. Okay? State one. State two, dreaming asleep. That's Swapna. The third state, dreaming awake. Ordinary consciousness. So, you, so again, you have dreamless asleep, dreaming asleep, dreaming awake. Now doesn't it seem like there's a need for a fourth one? Dreamless awake. Turiya. Why would that matter? Because if we just analyze those three states that we are familiar with, that we go through, you can never say, who am I, from all three. I can only say the dream is unreal from Jagrat. The person in Swapna can't say that, won't say that. Even if you're lucid dreaming, you still see the dream. And of course, a person in deep sleep can never say, I am. So that begs the question, which one is real? Or are any of them real? And that is what sparked the spiritual search for sages of the past. That I can't say for sure who I am. And in like a couple sessions ago, Chuang Tzu, the Taoist master of China, had the essay about the man himself, Chuang Tzu, who slept and dreamt he was a butterfly. And then when he awoke, he said, I'm not sure if I'm a man who dreamt he was a butterfly or a butterfly now dreaming it's a man. And this is sort of the, the context of some supernatural films or sci-fi movies like The Matrix or maybe Inception. This is not new, but putting those states of consciousness in that way, I think, helps illustrate why there could be a fourth state. So, between dreaming asleep and dreaming awake, everything that's possible 
in dream must be possible with waking eyes because you're not looking at reality just like you're not in the dream. You're producing reality. Remember before I said there's a blind spot here and there's a blind spot here. But we don't see a hole there. You would have to carefully demonstrate it with a, either drawing an X on a piece of paper and being the appropriate distance to make the X disappear. So there should be a, nothing here. There should be a little black hole here and here. But there's not. Which means my brain is projecting with the light on my retina. And all the senses are doing that to some extent. Now, I'm not saying any of this to dismiss our experiences. What I'm saying is that through meditation and through, through seeking, we can start with more openness. So, so part of the challenge is here when we're trying to get a more realistic understanding is that we, we tend to start from the top down. We're given our beliefs. We're given the answers before we're given the tools of inquiry. So it may be that there are these different dimensions and those dimensions we encounter in dreams and waking. I think there's a lot more to our experience. But I also think that nothing is happening in deep sleep and if there's this fourth state, Turiya, maybe that's going to have some of the answers about all of the phenomena that's, that's happening in between. In yoga, they call the, the experience of this, the, the fruit of uh, meditation, nirvikalpa samadhi. Samadhi is, has different levels of awareness beginning samadhi would be like being lucid in the dream. So when a person has a lucid dream, the same rules no longer apply. And so it's thought that that's where the yogi gets his or her power is from their samadhi experience. So then sometimes you hear the stories of yogis being able to levitate or read minds because they're taking control of the dream in this description in the in Vedic philosophy. So, the last thing I'd like to share is that um, there are ghosts that we all do live with that are much more pernicious, and those are our negative thoughts. Much more damaging and limiting than any kind of spirit that we may encounter is the negative beliefs that we have about ourselves and others. I would offer that we, we look at our own mind through self-inquiry. Notice the phantom of thought. Yes, there's, there's an electrical impulse and cells are firing. When the thought is there, it's of two kinds. It's either Casper, the friendly ghost, or it's demonic, something that's, that troubles us, that haunts us. And we can't get away from it. It follows us. It's like a dark energy. And we keep thinking of it. We, we return to it. And it holds us back. It limits us. It really impacts our life. But through meditation, we can develop a sense of equanimity towards both the hungry ghost and the angels or good ghosts on the other side. 
and we can start by just seeing our own th our own thoughts in that way then the biggest ghost of all is the mind the mind seems to have an existence but when you look for it you can't find it the mind is kind of like a river in the sense that we we all accept that there's a river you can go look at it right but where is the essential river if i take a a glass and i fill it up with the river it's it wouldn't be accurate to say i have the river with me now you have water right so if you dam that river and make it still water then it's a lake so the river is only a river if it's flowing therefore it seems to have no final existence and it flows into the ocean or flows into another river and if there's no rain for a long time the river like in parts of the southwest the bed is there but there's no river so where did the river go the mind is is a lot like that as long as it's flowing like the river as long as the the thoughts are flowing we say uh, yes yeah i have a mind or i am the mind but when the thoughts dry up either in deep meditation or deep sleep or in turiya who can say there's a mind and so in this sense this is the ultimate ghost that we want to try to find the the truth about so in meditation you can practice looking for the mind looking for the looker seeking for the seeker and by turning attention upon itself people can uh, wake up to to some extent our identity is an illusion and and that's not meant to be psychologically destabilizing it's really meant to be liberating because so much of our suffering comes from all of the effort that we have to put in to maintain the false self and all of its extensions which include possessions and property and the roles that the ego plays and all the things that we think we do not that nature's doing we think i do i succeed i fail and those become ghosts then that haunt us because through my pride i get attached i get attached to people work and through my mistakes i grow in fear and uh, resentment so we'll pause here thank you everybody one more ghost story for the road this is a story about a brahmin brahmin is uh, the priestly caste if you're familiar with the caste system there's brahmin which are the highest then the kshatriya which is the warrior class or kings and rulers and then there is the vaishya which is the merchant class and then sudra which is the serving class we get the word outcast from the system meaning anybody that didn't fit into one of those uh, four categories they were out of the caste and they uh, later became known as untouchables in india anyways so the story is about a brahmin so a high caste person and he had a farm and some cows one night a thief made his way to the brahmin's house with the intention 
of stealing the cows. But before he could enact his plan, he saw that there was someone else there. He looks over. Who are you? That person says, I'm a ghost. Who are you? The thief says, I'm a thief. What are you here to do? This ghost was actually the reaper. He says, I'm here for the Brahmin. And the thief says, well, I'm just here for the cows. So they make their way to the window of the Brahmin to see if he had gone to sleep. The ghost says, my agreement is to take him in his sleep because he's high caste, right? So when you're a holy person, you get to go peacefully in your sleep. And the thief says, yeah, I'm waiting for him to go to sleep as well so that I can quietly steal the cows without being seen. And so the, the ghost says to the thief, all right, now he's out. And now the lamp is turned off. You wait here. I'll go take the Brahmin. And then you can easily take the cows. The thief says, No, 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 no. Hold on. You're just going to go wake him up. (laughs) And then then I won't be able to get the cows. I'll take the cows. And then you take the Brahmin after I get what I want. And the ghost says, No, uh-uh. Because if you go get the cows, one of them will moo, and then he'll wake up, and I won't be able to take the Brahmin in his sleep. And like this, they start arguing. (laughs) And then they start fighting with each other. And because they distrust each other so much, the thief cries out to the the Brahmin. He bangs on the window, hey, hey, wake up. The reaper's out here. He's going to take you. And the, the ghost starts banging on the window. Hey, hey, wake up. This thief, he's going to try to steal your cows. <laughs> and then with all this noise, the Brahmin does wake up. And then he turns on the light and looks out. But once everything is illuminated, there's no one there. The end. <laughs>